whenever my world falls apart I never lose hope or lose heart Whatever the form of the storm that may brew Not with you to lean on, darlings, you Hello and welcome to The Original Cast, a podcast about original cast albums and the people who love them. I'm Patrick Flynn, playwright, filmmaker, and professor of communications at American University. In each episode, we invite someone from the theater who you might see on stage, backstage, or in the house to discuss an original cast album they love. And today we have our first fan. This is the very first fan episode. Uh, Here in Washington, D.C., where we record, is a thriving uh, theater culture. And that culture could not exist without the fans. And not surprisingly, a lot of those fans uh, work for and or with uh, and or on behalf of the federal government. And today's guest is uh, no exception. I'm very happy to welcome the executive director of the LGBT caucus in the House of Representatives, Roddy Flynn. Hello, Patrick. Hello, Roddy. Before we get uh, into the album you chose, I I feel we need to address two things. First of all, uh, our shared last name is not a coincidence. You are my brother. Yes, I am. And we have another brother. We do. His Michael. Name is Michael. Right. Yep. And he also works on the Hill. He does. For the House Government Reform and Oversight Committee. O- Oversight and Government Reform. Oversight so, and Government yes, Reform. Yeah. Okay. OGR. Hi, yes. Mike. Hey, uh, Michael. Uh, second, uh, I feel we need to address what uh, does the executive director of the LGBT Caucus of the House of Representatives do? So it's one of two titles that I have. The LGBT Caucus, I work for the House of Representatives for, we have 86 members, we're a bipartisan caucus that is focused on LGBT rights. So we work with our members to advance their LGBT strategies. And for those of you that don't know, LGBT is lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender. And designing legislation, communication strategy. I'm also the managing director of Equality PAC, which is the political uh, action uh, working to elect openly LGBT people to Congress. So our leaders in the LGBT caucus got together to form the PAC, and so we were working to elect a lot of uh, great LGBT people. How's that going? Uh, you know, it's a slow road, but we got uh, we have a lot of good LGBT candidates up, and we were just founded, so you know, let's give me some time. Give me some time, okay? And then, right, um, okay, and you chose the album you chose to discuss. Yes, anyone can whistle. Hi there, Cora. What's new? Bank went bust, and I'm feeling blue. And who took over the bankruptcy? Me, boys, me. CC. Me, boys, me. From the reservoir. And what's the state of the water supply? And this is obviously you being my brother, uh, not surprising to me that you love this album. This is the album I most associate with you. So we should say, though you are government professional, professional political operative, however you would mm-hmm, something define like that. something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you have a rich experience in theater, even though you tried not to for a certain amount yes, of time. a rich and varied experience. Right. Uh, yeah, no, I, I um, did, so I, I grew up um, seeing you do theater, for, for those of you at home playing along. Um, Patrick is five years <laughs> older than I am. Oh, great. Um, so when I was young, he always was doing, you were always doing theater. Did theater all throughout college. Um, well, that's school. the reluctant part. So you came here to yeah. AU to school. Yeah. Without the intention to do theater, you were studying... You were a Clegg major Clegg here, major, which yeah. you can look up online. I'm yeah, not going to explain just, what yeah. that is. And it was freshman year you got involved with the AU players? It was, yeah. Yeah, but you've kind of much. retired from the stage at this point, I would imagine. Or I think just, so, and, just... and unless there's popular demand for, for me to return, which so far, it's it's a quiet fan base. Right. I call them the silent majority. Right. Um, dedicated to silent. Yes, dedicated. dedicated. Great. And so you, well, you listen to albums, a lot of cast albums in the house, and 
now is it fair for me to say at this point that most of them were just the same ones I was listening to? Yes, but Anyone Can Whistle, for me, was the first time I listened to an entire, or not listened to, but got fully invested in an entire album as opposed to individual songs. So, you know, I knew individual songs from Assassins. I was obsessed with Weekend of the Country from Little Night Music. Never listened to a single other song on that album until I was, I think, like, in college. Um, (laughs) That's unfortunate. It is. Yeah, it was great. It's a great show. Um, You know, Into the Woods, Sunday in the Park with George, tons of Godspell, Les Mis, tons of shows, but Anyone Can Whistle was the first time I listened to an album, did not see the show. So I was, my only experience of this was listening to the album. Listened to the album from beginning to end and loved the entire thing. So visualized this whole show, read about the show, um, probably started, I probably first heard it when I was eight or nine. Okay. um, And continually loved it for, for many, many years to today. That's great. So, and you've never seen it, I imagine, because no. I've never seen it either. It's not seen produced YouTube very often. Clips of things from it, but I've never seen it. Yeah. And I was a little surprised you picked the cast album because I associate more with you the benefit concert with Bernadette Peters, Scott Bakula, Chip Zen, there's right. a few other people. In it. So, oh, Madeline, Madeline Kahn, Kahn. That's who I'm thinking. Angela Lansbury yeah. is the narrator. Well, narrating it. Yeah. Right. So. I chose the original because it is more meaningful to my development of love of theater okay. because I had it for so long. I really didn't listen to the revival until, you know, late high school anyway. Oh, okay. And even though it probably is a better record, don't tell Angela, but it's probably... Well, she's a, on both. Uh, uh, I know, but <laughs> bigger role. Um, it probably is better... Uh, you think so? ...representation of the show. Well, well it's certainly more of the, the show. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah, so it's yeah, hard yeah. to tell from... Though I do think you'll be going to talk about this later, but you lose something going to the flashier, bigger louder, brassier revival uh, okay. concert. Well, let's talk about original. the show for a second just to give everyone some context. So this is a this is a famously cult musical. Yes. The show w- was opened in 1964, Music and Lyrics by Stephen Sondheim, book by Ar- Arthur Lawrence. Um, Who had just come off of Gypsy and West Side Story, right? Right. Lawrence is, Lawrence is sort of at the peak of his powers, and Sondheim has just come off Funny Thing Happened on the Way yeah. to the Forum. So this is, this is a real juggernaut experience. The only Sondheim show I really don't like. Forum? Yeah. Well, it's the least Sondheim, Sondheim show, yeah, I yeah. think. Yeah. Th- and this is the first show. So Sondheim's coming off of Forum, which ran for 900 performances. It is the longest running show he ever did. No show has ever run longer than Forum. Oh. Uh, Into the Woods came close. I think Into the Woods ran over 800 performances. But Forum is far and away his most financially successful show he's oh. ever done. In its initial Broadway run, I should say. And he went right into this, which, but Forum was a great commercial success. However, his score was completely ignored. It, it, Forum won the Tony for Best Musical. It won Best Book. Sir Mustafa, I think, won Best Actor. But Sondheim's score was not nominated. It was not mentioned in any of the reviews. And it is, a, like, there's not songs in there that you would ever pick out as being great works of Sondheim. Right, anyway. uh, yeah. Very typical music theater songs. So when he wrote this show, this is the first, I think, Sondheim show. What we know Sondheim as mm-hmm. today. This is experimental, trying a lot of things with it, not playing it safe. And what happened, of course, was that the show is a three-act musical, which is very rare, even yes. in 1964. Lawrence wrote the book and directed it. It starred Angela Lansbury, Harry Gardino, and uh, Lee Remick, all big stars at the time, and ran, opened in the Majestic Theater, where a fan of the opera plays today, and ran for a total of nine yeah. performances after 16 previews. Um 
So it is a cult musical. I mean, it's funny. As Angela Lansbury's first Broadway Angela Lansbury's first musical, yeah. And, uh, I mean, she was well-established in her career, but she was... As an actress, but right. not as a singer and not as right. uh, in the musical. And went on to win three Tony Awards in her career, I think, maybe more. And so is obviously well thought of right. as a music theater performer. Her career survived. And it wasn't Continued. released in the, the, the album, the original cast recording, didn't have all the songs in it. It was very cut down. So, yes, at this point, we should also talk about how cast albums are made and how unusual it is for a show that only ran nine performances to have a cast album, period. Back in the 60s, cast albums, and even this goes up into the 80s, cast albums and 90s, cast albums were were create, recorded, the record company paid for it. And the record company would only record the album if the show was guaranteed to run a certain number of performances because then it would mean it was popular and people would have hear, heard about it to then buy the record. And cast albums are not cheap. Um, you have to pay, the equity rule is you have to pay the actors a week's salary for the recording session. And for a show like <laughs> this that ran for one week, that means they doubled their salary by recording the cast album the day after the show closed. This was an expense on the behalf of uh, Goddard Lieberson, who produced the record and produced a lot of Sondheims, where he produced the cast album for West Side Story and for Gypsy and came back and did Little Night Music later in his career. Um, as a personal favor to Sondheim, he recorded this album, and Sondheim dedicated the score to him as a result. So if you get the score today, it's to Goddard Liebertson. But it was a labor of love for everybody involved. And But as a result, there are corners cut throughout this entire album from a production standpoint that you don't necessarily notice the first time. But the first right. one being there are several songs cut. And when, and when you listen to the... You know, the concert recording in 1990, was that 1995? I think, yeah. You can really see how much was cut because there's so many. I you know, originally thought maybe they wrote some more songs, but then I, when I read about it, it was like, no, there's so much was left off of this original recording. Well, they did. So one song they recorded for the album that is on the CD, was not on the original album, but was not in the show, is probably the most famous song yes. from the show. Well, with, uh, it's certainly the one, one of the, sh the reasons you the there won't be trumpets, is what I'm talking oh, about. Oh, that's not that's on the original cast recording. It's on the CD. It is not was not on the LP when the LP was released, oh. um, and it was not in the show. It was a cut song from the original production. I didn't know that because it comes right after a long comedic monologue delivered by Faye Apple, Lee Remick's character, uh, and the apparently I can't believe this is true because it's such an amazing song. But that the, the uh, monologue was getting more applause than the song was, so they cut the song. Hmm. Yeah. But it, that song was one of the reasons that the show survived because that became a cabaret standard. Yeah. And Anyone was, who's seen a senior recital at a college has yes, seen, has seen yeah. somebody's, <laughs> somebody's doing There yes. Won't Be Trumpets. Yeah. yeah. But so I, I would like to ask you at this point to summarize the plot yeah. of well, Anyone okay. Can Whistle. So it's a great show. The, the uh, music is amazing. The plot is bananas. It, it's a very confusing, <laughs> not confusing, weird plot. Um, so I, but I, I will endeavor uh, to, to to describe what happens in the show. Okay, so the plot of Anyone Can Whistle. And I should note that if, even if you've heard the original cast recording before, the plot is really far beyond what these songs do. A lot of the songs were cut out, and a lot of the plot just doesn't happen in the songs. So it's there's a lot of insanity that kind of goes around outside the songs. So, so the basic concept is that there's a town, a fictional town, that is bankrupt. And the mayoress of the town, Cora Hoover Hooper, is a Machiavellian, ambitious woman who really wants to find a way to bring the town back, but mostly promote herself. So she starts out with a great song called Me and my town 
She comes up with the idea of a fake miracle that will drive tourism. There'll be a rock, and that there will be a pipe in the rock, and water will burst out of the pipe, and everyone will think that the water's coming from the rock like that old Moses. Scam. So she orchestrates this miracle, which is a huge success. Tourists flock in to see the miracle. They charge admission. Rejuvenates the town. In the town, there is a sanatorium that is called the Cookie Jar. The nurse of the Cookie Jar, our heroine, Faye Apple, is very suspicious of the miracle. She's a very scientific, logical, kind of cold woman. And so she wants to disprove this miracle. And so she takes all of the patients at the sanatorium, who are referred to as cookies, 49 of them, to the miracle. I'm like the bluebird. I should worry, I should care. I should be a millionaire. I'm like the bluebird. She's going to dip them in the water, and when they're not cured, she thinks it will expose the miracle for what it is. There won't be trumpets. Somehow, at that point, the 49 cookies are intermixed with all the townspeople, and no one's able to figure out who's a townsperson and who's a cook. And Mayor uh, Cora is trying to figure out, well, how am I going to separate everyone out? And miraculously, a man appears who says that he's on his way to go work for the cookie jar to, to be a new medical director. And so he can separate out who are the cookies and who are not. He interrogates all the people and tries to separate. He separates them into two groups, group one and group A. Simple, 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 simple as A, B, C. But he evades saying whether group one is crazy or whether group A is crazy. Right. End of act one, in the original staging, there was a kind of Brechtian uh, oh, very Brechtian thing moment. that happened, which is they, you know, he was separating out everyone at the, the, the climax of this numbers, and the, the lights have gone down at that point, so it goes blackout. He said, Dr. Hapgood says, You are all mad. The lights come up again, and the entire cast is then seated facing the audience. Right. So And they you know, stand up and applaud. Right. So you see what they're doing there. They're right. Where, yeah, you can, yeah. The who's, theme, wa- who's watching whom? Right. Exactly. Right. The theme starts to, to yes. emerge. That ends Act 1. Right. (laughs) Everybody with us so far? When Act 2 starts, we rejoin Faye Apple, and she has realized that she's too cold. She's developed a bit of a crush on this doctor, the one who came to separate everyone. His name is uh, Dr. Hapgood. She developed a bit of crush on him, so she wants to be a little looser. She, she develops this persona called Lady of Lords, who's a miracle inspector. She puts on, <laughs> this is literal in the, in, in the script in the play, she, she puts on a college theater costume with a red wig, uh, dons a French accent, and attempts to seduce Dr. Hapgood. In a, Come out and play with me. She is successful in seducing him, or at least in... in well, for everyone who wasn't lost at the, the townies and the cookies being mingled and finding right. that inexplicable. I think this is the other moment where people go, what? Like, right, because if you're listening to the album, you have no idea why she's Suddenly she's, doing she's singing in a French, French accent, accent for no yeah, reason. For no yeah. reason. So they get together, and she figures out that Dr. Hapgood... Well, he figures out that she's lying. Yes. She, that he she's in disguise. She's yeah. She figures out that he's lying, and he wasn't actually arriving to town to work at the cookie jar. She, he was arriving in town to be a patient at the cookie jar. And he says, you know what you should do, Faye? You should destroy all the records from the cookie jar so that they'll never be able to separate who is who are the cookies and who are the townspeople. What is reality? She, she then explains that... She's really good at things. She can figure things out in a science kind of way. She can train herself, but she can't whistle. She can't do these innate, artistic, quote-unquote... Simple things. Simple things. Anyone can whistle. He buys that, and... He, <laughs> <laughs> he questions nothing and moves yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. He, um... Because we're only halfway through Act right. 2. 
While this has all been happening with these two lovers getting together, the town has fallen into chaos. Group A, group one, who's crazy, who's not, who are the townspeople, they, but what they agree on is that they love Dr. Hapgood. I think he's a genius. So they're dancing around saying, oh, isn't Dr. Hapgood great? This leads to my favorite song of the show. The mayor, you know, this ambitious mayor woman, mayoress, as they are always careful to point out. Yes. I think mayor is a gender neutral term. but it certainly she, is now, anyway. <laughs> she sings, There's a parade in town. It's a great song, really well performed by Angela Lansbury. Dr. Hapgood encourages Bay Apple through his masculinity to... To let go a little bit. Everybody says don't. He convinces her to destroy the record so that they'll never be able to figure out who are the cookies and who are not the cookies. And then we have our first ballet. Then we have our first the ballet. The don't ballet. But, um, That's right, folks. First ballet. The first ballet. End of act two. End of act two. <laughs> yeah, we're we not even now, a third. We are now two thirds of the way through this show. <laughs> and not through the most plot intensive act. No, no, no. The third, no, the third no. act is the most plot intensive. No, so, okay, yeah. let's see if we can undo now this. Now things are going to get rolling. Cora gets a letter that says that the governor will impeach her if she is unable to separate out the crazy people and, and the townspeople. One of her advisory council comes up with the idea. Yeah, she has this group of cronies. Yeah. To just throw the first 49 people they find in the cookie jar and everything will be solved. I've got you to lean on. At this point... Faye is trying to convince Hapgood to expose the miracle for what it is, which is a fraud. Hapgood is saying, no, we're not going to expose the miracle. We're going to let it go because the miracle is something that binds the town together and it's doing its job as miracles do, whether it's real or not. She gets very upset by this. She's very despondent and sends him away. After she sends away Dr. Hapgood, she sees what the mayoress is doing and rounding people up. We have our second ballet. We have our second ballet. She thinks about exposing the mayor as a little back and forth reminded about it, but then realizes, no, Hapgood was right. I don't let go enough. And so she does a reprise of Anyone Can Whistle, at the end of which she attempts to whistle, and it's a very bad whistle. But just the fact that she attempted to whistle is enough to bring Hapgood back from the foreign lands that he has (laughs) fled to and realize, oh, you have let go of your frigid womanness, and you are now willing to embrace life as I have. By this point, I should also add that the mayor has turned off the miracle. The miracle is no longer on. So water is no longer pouring from the rock. And all the cookies have left town because there's another nurse that comes in who's actually the person they were waiting for. We're not going to go into all that. Yeah, there's a whole other thing going on. We're just not going to get into all that. All you need to know is the mayoress is alone without the water running on the stage. On the stage. Hapgood and Faye have gotten together. They kiss. And after they fall in love, water does spontaneously burst from the rock. So their love has caused a real miracle to happen and seen. And Cora and one of her flunkies, uh, Comptroller Shub, sing a reprise of I've Got You to Lean On, and they get together because yeah, no woman can be alone. Right. <laughs> the worst thing. In this world. <laughs> in 1964. It's some Mad Men crap going yeah, on yeah. in this show. Okay, yeah. so here's the thing. I'm reminded as you tried to sum- summarize that plot to me of um i think it was edward alby but it might be arthur miller who said that he hates when people ask him for a plot synopsis because if he could summarize the plot in two or three sentences he wouldn't have had to write a whole play <laughs> and i respect that point of view however that is unbelievably complicated and hard to follow without music and lyrics right on top of it right um and it is widely regarded that the biggest problem with this show was the book was Lawrence's concept and 
his the fact that he was directing this took away a level of somebody being there saying no like this this doesn't make sense you need to rewrite big chunks of this right which he never well because it's a very fantastical plot there are, there are a lot of yes. uh, not quite you know like a well, full satirical. fantasy it's satirical and right. ex- and and uh it's not what they were seeing at the time it wasn't like funny girl or dolly or anything it was a much more funny girl fiddler and dolly combined maybe is that, oh yeah it was much <laughs> more weird it is much much well, weirder. It, yes it is surreal it is it, it's a musical that is often stated as being before its time i think that's inaccurate i think it's very very of its time i think it's very mid 60s insane in a way that was starting to be seen however be seen off broadway and it's not a very subtle satire it's oh a, god in heaven no it's a they, they really get the point across at, at this like, and just in case, I, and you you mentioned that moment at the end of simple i mean this song is 10 minutes long yeah. and is one of my favorite sondheim compositions there See, is i no always question. skipped it on oh the... i love simple it's it's one of the ones it's a cool song it's just it's the wordplay. For instance, you, sir, third from the left with the manly good looks. Will you come forward, please, Mr. Hapgood? I thought your name was Hapgood, doctor. Well, calling the patient by my name, he identifies with me immediately. We have an instant transference and thereby save five years of psychoanalysis. Brilliant! The, the way it progresses. Yeah, some of it's kind of like bluesy and some of it yeah. is. With every, uh, every character part of the conceit is every, they introduce all these townspeople and, and cookies. and He's John and she's June and, you know, all They all that. give a watch cry so they all the, the way he tells if they're crazy is they all give their life motto and each of their life mottos is presented in a different musical style and right it's very cool yeah and he eventually so works long. his way up he works his way through the, a couple townspeople and then works his way up to the mayoress's council and that's where things get great i mean yeah. when he talks to the the treasurer Listen, occupation brother. preacher no i'm treasurer Cooley. oh you were a preacher hapgood i am a treasurer Cooley. and I they mean... kicked you out of your pulpit brother because you were crazy because i believe in being treasurer in god they only believe in religion ah and that's what drove you crazy, Hapgood. I am not crazy, Cooley. Oh, yes, you're crazy, Hapgood. I am not Cooley. I mean, I am not crazy. I'm Hapgood. Are you sure? I am completely sure. He's crazy. Thank you. Group A, over there, please. Get it? Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah. Yes, it is. And when you get finally up to the, um, is it the comptroller who is calls him a communist? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And which Shoot. is very of its time of calling him a communist and saying the opposite of left is right, the opposite of right is wrong. So anyone who's left is wrong, right? Good, good. Hello. Hello. Well, one thing, one point that I want to make is that it wasn't only a commercial flop. It, you know, it ran for nine performances, no one was seeing it. It was also critically panned. Oh, universally panned. I mean, it was, and I brought... Except the, for the choreography, which was... I brought the New York Times sold review. sold Tony nomination. Oh, you did? Oh, I great. Did. Which praises the choreography. But just to read a, a slight portion of this, this is the April 6, 1964, New York Times review of Anyone Can Whistle by Howard Talbeman. And Howard said, There's no law against saying something in a musical, but it's unconstitutional to omit imagination and wit. In an attempt to be meaningful... Anyone can whistle, forgets to offer entertainment. Wow. And that's the, that's the opening. That's the lead. <laughs> this was a pan. That having been said, I loved it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exa- <laughs> uh, and he praises the, the score a bit, and he and he talks about the, the yeah. dancing. Well, the dancing. <laughs> I think people loved the people dancing. Loved, well, it's got two ballets in it. <laughs> I hope they love the dancing. And the choreography was by Herbert Ross, who is a who would go on to be a noted film director and presence on Broadway as a choreographer and a director. I mean, directed the films like The Goodbye Girl and Play It Against Sam. 
Um, and he received the show's sole Tony nomination for his choreography. He did not win. Um, like I said, the show only ran for nine performances. Right. Not a lot of people saw it. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, it was panned and derided yeah. as being right. a mess, basically, right? Is that, would that yeah, be fair? Yeah, which was hurtful to me as a child because... <laughs> So I think 40 years later, I was trying to think of why this caught on to me. A young boy in Wilmington, Delaware. (laughs) A single tear. Cries over the New York Times review of anyone could whistle. Because Howard Taubman just, (laughs) why was he so mean? Slandered the Uh, show. Leave leave Angela alone. Um, And I should say, she actually did praise Angela Lonesbury. But Mm -hmm. when I was, I think one of the reasons I was drawn to it was that you had told me when I was eight or whenever I first listened, is that it did only run for a very short amount of time. Yeah. And I think in liking it that I was part of an intellectual elite. Um, I can be I can be a bit of a snob sometimes. Yes, you can. Um, especially when I was eight. And yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was a very snooty eight-year-old. You were a very snooty. It's a very accurate. And so I think one, the one reason I liked it was that it was something that no one, you know, no one else really had. It was so cult. And I was mm-hmm. you know, knowledgeable about theater. Right. And what's really good. But then when I was in grade school, some, it was some open project or something. I wrote a paper on Anyone Can Whistle. Which unfortunately, I don't have. That would be great. Oh, yes. But, yeah. But I do remember in my research finding out that it was critically panned. And I was really upset by that. That I think that I, that's something that I really Why? loved. Why? Why do you think you were so... Well, as an eight, I mean, you're not... Oh, I guess I was... We were like 10. 10 at right. that point. 10, 12. Um, and an emotional 10, I should em- say. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. A um, lot going on. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I... Um, why was I so upset by it? I, I don't I, because it was something that I really loved, and that my experience of everything else on time was very was understanding it to be something that was liked by people in the know, and it felt that I didn't know what I should like and and didn't. Know. Okay, so that's interesting. So this speaks to a larger sort of Sondheim problem, I think, that exists. That Sondheim never really had a hit, still. And I, I would imagine he's not going to put up any more shows on Broadway. So we'll just say he's never had a hit in his career. With the exception of, as I say, Forum into the wo- and Into the Woods, he's had many shows run for over 500 performances, which we would objectively consider to be a hit. However, very few of them have recouped their investment. Follies being an example of a show that everybody thought was a huge success but lost all the money that was put into it. I didn't know that. He's, I mean, Sweeney Todd, I think maybe was you could consider that to be a hit. It certainly had a great run on the road after it closed on Broadway. But he's never been, you know, the longest, you know, Angela Lloyd Webber has two of the three longest running shows on Broadway, someone who is not critically as successful, or at least in the cultural zeitgeist as Sondheim is. But Sondheim shows are very well respected and well appreciated by fans of theater, but don't run for a really long time, and this being the shortest, and not the shortest by a lot, we should say, Mary Lee Reroll Long did only run for 16 performances. Is that, is, was that an awakening for you, would you say, that like not just because I like it or just because people think it's good doesn't mean that it's successful? Yes, and I think it was awakening for me a bit about the nature of criticism. Oh. And, you know, the critic as a... You were an emotional exactly. 10. <laughs> I was. Um, <laughs> but it made me think about... Critics differently because also I knew you liked it and I knew right. that you know our so it must have been our good. parent well and, and other people you know I, I wasn't yeah. completely alone in this iceberg, um, so it made me just think a little more nuanced about about what it is. I should say I never stopped listening to it, of course. Right. Yeah. You know, power okay. forward there. Um, 
so yeah, but it was it was a, it was it was a really hard time, you know. And wow, yeah, it was a breakthrough it for was. you there. Well, you had the internet at ten, which I didn't have. Moment. See, I you right, you, you right. had the disadvantage of, of the the burden of knowledge. You say because before that, it was pretty much just what I was telling you was was what it's, you were exactly, accepting yes. as truth. So what is so you mentioned that one of your favorite songs is a parade in town. Is mm-hmm. that sort of your big parade in town? I would say probably my number one favorite song on this original cast recording. Now, you know, A Parade in Town was definitely something that resonated with me, as a, again, as a small child. As, um, as an emotional 10. Because Cora resonated with me a lot more. I, I just thought the mayor was such a fun really? character. Okay. I loved the mayor. She is wonderful. And I think the show would be more successful if it if that was the show. If the show was about her, and only her, and her misguided and right. terrible attempts. And maybe Faye trying to undo her. Right. Yeah. But Faye being much more of a minor character mm-hmm. than than she, because, it, I mean, aside from the fact there's songs about her, it's a much more interesting... If you're going to go with the satire, it's always more interesting to put make your central focus live in the satire mm-hmm. and believe the satire more than Faye, who doesn't believe the satire and is working actively against it in a lot of ways. It's a hard show. It's a very hard show. Well, and the songs are hard. I mean, so you, you mentioned that at, there's when you were talking about the, the, the first number, Me and My Town, the second part of it, all of these songs are very different in the beginning and the end. These aren't your typical musical theater where there's one melody line that kind of goes through. These are very complex musical numbers. Right. And so, so it, it's for that. It's fun if you like music and you like right. to kind of parse these things apart. And they're very hard to sing. And uh, you know, as Sondheim typically, though I think to a more extreme level in this than some of his other shows, just very challenging. Which yeah. Is particularly impressive for Angela Lansbury's first Broadway musical. Well, that that brings me to something about this recording that that struck has only struck me recently. And there it, are a number of musical errors hmm. that make it onto this recording because I believe there wasn't time for take four. Like mm-hmm. there was just like, listen, I'm doing this as a favor to you. And the last thing we're going to do is run, like this recording session is going to take eight hours, <laughs> period. Because there's a great, in the film, the, the documentary about the making of the company cast album, which would have been Sondheim's next cast album produced by Thomas E. Shepard, they come back on for another day and record Ladies Who Lunch with Elaine Stritch because she can't get it in the day. I don't think, because that's, that show was still running and was going to keep running. Mm-hmm. It was obviously, there was money to, like, there was a reason to stretch it. That isn't true with this show. He's It's a favor. So if, like, there's a part where she sings, I've got you to lean on, and her voice kind of cracks. I feel like a lovely girl of 22. I've got you to lean on. I've got you to lean on. I've got you to lean on. And there's a couple other moments where she sort of yeah. she doesn't quite make her notes, and Harry uh, Gordino doesn't quite make his notes. And F- Lee Remick, wonderful performer though she is, is not the strongest singer in the mm-hmm. universe either. I mean, none of the singers are very strong in the right. leads. So it's a lot of shout singing and a lot. Of it is a lot of shout singing, singing yeah. yeah. But there's very little to hold on to from emotional mm-hmm. truth sort of standpoint. Like it, like Lee Remick's character, Faye Apple, is the most emotionally honest character. Right. And she even still, you know, except for. Anyone can whistle. Doesn't have a whole lot of songs to get to get herself out there. Well, she's the only one who really goes through any kind of a journey. I mean, in terms of a character development. Well, I, I would argue that that Cora does, that they all do. Hers is the most clear because it's also the most stated in, right. and in the music. Right. Yeah, little sexist. It's a li- oh, just a tiny <laughs> bit. Though interesting for the time to have a show in 1964 mm-hmm. with two female leads and and a male. I mean, and written right. that way. You know, it, it's very clearly designed to be a, a female heavy show, which is great. Um, 
Yes, you're right. The overt, there's still the romantic lead has to be right. a, a problem that needs to be fixed by a the man. man the man has to come in and The man has to come in and fix it. Yeah. Right, which is the song, There Won't right. Be Trumpets. Right. Yeah, we, we need a man. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. and then he shows up. Interesting, though, that the person they're actually waiting for is a woman. Uh, oh, right. Oh. Yeah. There's a lot but of stuff like that. But then she's not great But then she's not great either. Yeah, it's a show that's just, it's fraught with difficulty from the beginning to the end. And difficulties you don't really, I think one of the things you probably reacted to when you read that review is if you just listen to the album, you would kind of think, oh, this show is huge, right? Like, these songs are great. This right. is a fun score. And maybe it's a little We're weird. We're saying a lot of negative things. It's a really fun show. Oh, the album is astonishingly yeah. good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is there are songs on this that I have on my phone right now that I could listen to. It, it is a, a show that I like to revisit. The, the, the story, it's that once you try to, like, the closer you examine the show, the, the less it all holds mm. together. And you, I think you see the symptoms of what, why this show ran for nine performances. This show probably ran longer than it was supposed to. I mean, honestly, because it's just, it's, 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 it doesn't hold together. It's a lot of really good ideas and it's almost too many good ideas. Mm -hmm. I think kind of piled one on top of each other, trying to do, trying to come after politics and religion, you know, trying to lampoon the times a little too hard and trying to also have a sweet love story at the center of all this. There's my favorite piece of, of satire in the thing is, do you know what the, what the town made that caused them to go bankrupt? I don't know. All I know is that it was a, uh, a, an op, uh, something that doesn't break or it doesn't break. They never really tell you what it was. It was just, it was an object that never broke. So it never had to be replaced. So everybody bought one and then they that couldn't make anymore. Right. So it's like Edison and the light bulb where you had right. to start <laughs> inventing filaments that would burn out so people would buy more light bulbs. Right. And then they create something that is fake that does run out. Mm-hmm. I mean, sort of ironically. So there's a lot of, I mean, Lawrence is a very talented scriptwriter. He's, sure. he's you know, it's just, this, this is a great, he's a great ex- guy. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure he's a lovely man. Mm-hmm. Laura Benanti speaks very highly. <laughs> but I feel like this show with a director and I don't know if Hal Prince is the right director, but somebody directing, maybe George Abbott or Jerome, mm-hmm. or Jerome Robbins, would have said to him, we need some rewrites here to get us where we're going. Mm-hmm. You know, Because he kept, apparently throughout the whole production, was staging a lot, was restaging and restaging and restaging and restaging and never rewriting. Mm-hmm. But it is a wonderful show. And a show a I would, show. If, if given the opportunity, would rush to see. Um, sure. Yeah. Love, yeah. And now, but I want to see it staged. Like the show pops up in concerts a bunch. Mm-hmm. It pops up in stage readings. I want to see somebody stage this show. I want to see it. I would love to see it in its original three act version. Just to see. I mean, just to see. But I respect the fact that that that's yeah. three act three act shows. Period. Are hard. And three act musicals are pretty. Another one of my favorite musicals that was. Not a flop, but also wasn't a huge hit. That was three acts. Was the Apple Tree, Jerry Bach and Sheldon. Oh, Harnix. I love the Apple yeah. Tree. I really like the Apple Tree too, and that's even three discrete stories. That's mm-hmm. why it's three acts. But three acts is, yeah, three acts is hard even in a play. Three acts is tricky to get people to go out and then come back in again. Like you really better have some serious <laughs> interest going there. So let's talk about intermissions for a second. Do do you? I, I don't like intermissions. Me neither. Okay. Do you have any what what don't you like about intermission? The, so I I don't know. This may be a controversial statement to the the artists out there, but it, I think if your show needs intermission, it's too long. It's like how I feel about baseball. If you need to stretch after the seventh inning, probably should lop off oh, the last two innings. Oh, come on. Well, it's true. That's like if you do, if you really need a break well, from we have times <laughs> for other of, shows, other and, sports have half times. I don't like they that take a whole break. Either. But I that, you yeah, don't like that either. Um, I know. I'm not going to convince you with that argument. But uh, yeah, um, hockey's three acts. And has intermissions. Has three. <laughs> it does. It's three periods and um, two intermissions. Right. I, mean, I, I just think it's it's just, you know, it, it kills any kind of momentum that you could possibly have. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's 
wasted time. That we well, could now, and doing so something else. There are rules about these sorts of things. I know in equity, though, I don't know what they are. That if you're doing a musical, especially, you have to take a break. Like, oh, well, there sure. is the thing of like, and that's good for the actors. Yes, the actors need a break. The problem, I believe in strong unions. Yeah, there you go. Good. the The only tricky bit for me with intermissions is that traditionally, Act Two of most musicals is thirty minutes long and super weak. Like it really is very right. short, uh, yeah, yeah. and very none short. of your favorite songs are in it, and it just kind of we just quickly wrap up the story, and then we're going to move on. Whereas like Act One is like an hour and a half, and right. then Act Two is thirty minutes. I and, mean, I think a show that's I don't want to say ruined because it's a show I love, but Ragtime. The momentum of that show, I think, is arrested by having intermission. Now, mm. they have a great... What can save an intermission is they have a great end act one, of course, in Ragtime. Well, yes. And they have a good entre act to the, to the second act. So, and a good opening to act two. I mean, act two comes... Right, that's in, what I mean. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. And act two of Ragtime is as strong as act one is structurally... And but for sure, that that operates on a kind of propulsive force, having a... Well, it's yeah. true. And it's one of the funny things about Les Mis, to me, is that Les Mis... Act one of Les Mis covers... 20 years of time <laughs> act two covers like a day and a half and mm-hmm. it's just this funny like yeah we just gotta wrap this up here we're right. on the barricade let's just get this thing going right let's just let's just get us out west side story is kind of like that too it just sort of like quickly we got to get we got to get up and out of here right. really fast and it's a it's a real structural problem i like um drowsy chaperone has a great mm. no act break mm-hmm. where the narrator just comes down to the foot of the stage where act where the intermission is and eats a power bar yeah <laughs> and talks about how he doesn't like intermissions which is one of my favorite one of my favorite moments. It is always better if you're going to have an intermission to lean into it and to have a clear ending song. Well, and to have a reason clear, for the intermission. Yes. Yeah, and to have a reason. I mean, I think, you know, and Hamilton's this way where, like, you, you clearly break the show in half mm-hmm. because we're moving to a different phase right. of his life. Um, but a show that I we've talked about a lot on this podcast and will continue to talk about because it's one of the most the greatest experiences of my life is Fun Home does not have an intermission. Fun Home would be ruined by an intermission. There's nowhere to break. There's nowhere to stop. And like you say, the momentum right. of the show is pushing us. They would have to have written the show thinking they'd have an intermission. Yeah. You know what I mean? The, the, and there were a lot of musicals performed without intermission. I mean, Follies, the original production of Follies mm-hmm. had no intermission. And they put one in now with the uh, end of Act 1 being Too Many Mornings and the opening mm-hmm. of Act 2 being The Right Girl. Those are pretty good end of Act 1, opening of Act 2 songs. But again, the mo- like... You're absolutely right. The momentum kind of falls apart. So when you have two intermissions in a show like this, now I feel like this show is so physically challenging. Right, kind of with needed all the two dancing, intermissions yeah, with all the dancing right. and all the insanity. And a small and the, cast, a very small cast. Yeah, it would need the actors would need to sit down for mm-hmm. thirty minutes an evening right. and right. just catch their breaths. Um, yeah, so intermissions are. Yeah, I think we're going to just be opposed to intermissions sure, on this yeah. podcast. Firmly, we're just going to take a stand firmly. Yeah. It's, a, it's a rare musical that's worth two discs, and it's a rare <laughs> show that, get, that is worthy of Resolved. an intermission. Yeah. Right, motion carried. Yes. Um, it's it's interesting to think though if they had recorded this whole score, that would have been a two disc endeavor on LPs. I think it would mm. all fit on one CD, but an LP it would have been two two LPs. I wish they had. I mean, for anyone who hasn't heard this before. Listen to the original, but then also listen to the uh, concert version because yeah. the concert version has all—I don't know—all the music, but has a lot of the music. It certainly has all the music it you back find in, now. Um, uh, well, there's a deleted the song, song between Faye and Cora, which I love. Um, there's always a woman, right? There's which comes a woman. late in Act Two, right, yes. in the middle of Act Two. Yeah, right. which is a really good song. That was a cut song from the original production that they—that I think because now it's in two acts has a place. In the right. Act. There's always a woman to spoil the illusion. The rotten banana that ruins the bunch It's always a woman who causes confusion There's nothing as low as a woman We must lunch Love 
to Noonin tomorrow. Today, my place, mine. <laughs> you know, there's also a. The show really is two steps forward, one step yeah, back, isn't yeah, it? It's really like right. it could but also be called that. female characters, but their strength but they need makes men. them horrible people. Right. Yeah. Um, right. So, but which one? So, do you still listen to this now? Do you listen to it differently now? I mean, here we are. So, yes. you know, not to not to give out ages or anything, but we're set. We're at least one and a half decades later. Are you still? Mm-hmm. Is it still the same show to you? Is it still? Is well, it was interesting for changed? me to go. So. I have to admit that in the times I've listened to it in the past probably 10 years, I listened to the concert version Okay. Um, from the 90s. Oh. But it was fun when, when you, when we talked about this podcast and what show, you know, and kind of started my love of musical theater, to go back and listen to the original cast recording. And the ways I think the original cast recording is superior to the revival, which okay. is it's much simpler. It's a much more straightforward, there's something honest and kind of gritty about the way the songs are sung, which make it kind of meaner in a way and a little more strident and less candy and more, because the songs are very, if you're not listening to what they're saying sometimes, they're very fun, kind of yeah. pomp and... Yeah, it's a lot of 4-4 four, four time, of major yeah. keys, like we're, fun, yeah, we're hopping all over the place. Fun stuff. And if you're, if you're not really listening, so, but, but when you have Angela Lansbury singing who has a wonderful voice, but not a Madeline Kahn voice. Right. And if you have, you know, Lee Remick singing, who's not burned at Peter's. Yeah, there is something to the, the, the grittiness and the rawness of the cats. Even I, I find that with most original cast albums, any revival recordings, when you have the knowledge of the original, they have temporarily a sheen on them that I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of. The, the you know, recordings of like, whether, whether you'd listen to the, original of whatever or the revival I, I often find I find this with company a lot that the, the other subsequent mm. CDs of company maybe these people are better singers you know it's great to hear different people perform the different songs right. and, and have stronger voices and all that's wonderful but there's a quality to the original com- the original company of company that sets a really it, and Follies is this way to me Follies is one that I run into this problem a lot because the original cast album of Follies is a disaster. I mean, mm. it, from a production standpoint, it doesn't have half the songs in it, and that's another podcast. But it is, a, from a production standpoint, it's a waste. It is a real missed opportunity that that should have been a double disc. It should have been produced by Thomas Shepard. It should have been on RCA instead it or on Columbia instead. It was it was on Capitol, and it's a mess. But anyway, then when the the in 1998 when Paper Mill did it, they did a revi- they did a recording of the first complete recording of the score that had all the songs all the way through and it's got donna mckechnie and it's got you know a lot of great performers on it but it's got a sort of tint mm-hmm. to it like you're saying and there's a sort of bombast and self-importance to it maybe those are strong words but that just isn't as much right. isn't authentic or isn't as much fun sure and it's the other benefit of kind of cast recordings versus a concert recording which is often audience which is always a yes. better way to listen to a musical and Yes. Form your own opinion about it. And particularly when you have an audience with performers like Bernadette Peters and Angela Lansbury and, and Madeline Kahn in the concert, you know, who go nuts when they come on stage and, you know, go nuts for their big numbers. When they're playing to the house. Right. They're they, not they're not right. it's, they're not focusing on making the album. They're right. performing. That's right. their job. Right. And so, you know, that's not really a, uh, something that's anyone's fault. But right. it does it is a benefit to the original cast recording, I think, that you, you have a kind of a pure version of this. Yeah. You're still a little snooty. <laughs> It is part of what makes it a good cast recording, I think, and a good album, which is that it pulls out the best of the show. And that is very true. Crazy plot. That line. is true. And and in all the reviews, like you said, 
the the score was not necessarily praised, but it also wasn't derided. The thing that was consistently derided right. was the direction and the book. Right. And I don't want to belabor this point too much with Arthur Lawrence, who is a, a great contributor American to American treasure. music theater. Yeah. 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 Uh, Sondheim, at this point in his career, has written one show that has been produced. He has also written... Saturday Night, which is unproduced. So he's gone through the experience of wanting to be a composer lyricist, putting aside the composer to do West Side Story, then being hired to write the music and lyrics for Gypsy, and Ethel Merman wasn't comfortable with it, so he only did the lyrics for Gypsy, as he would put it. I think Gypsy's an amazing score, and I think he deserves a lot of credit for that. Um, so this is his second musical, and I kind of feel like what you've said and what I've read. Yeah. This show was not going to got a. This was going to go on. Like he was dedicated to this yes. show being produced, and he was going to do it his way. And by hook or by crook, didn't care. I mean, there's some. I was figures, devastated by the reviews. And there's some figures on there that he he did like 130 backers auditions mm-hmm. performances of this mm-hmm. show. I mean, that's that's yeoman's right. work. Yeah. And and he sang them himself. He did like, right. Yeah. And he's you know, I mean, that's not that's humiliating to do over. And, and you over can again. buy versions of him singing. This right song. on the song. Sondheim sings yeah. volume one and two. You can hear yeah. him singing demos of these songs, which are good. And some early versions of songs like There Won't Be Trumpets, which are really, really interesting. Um, yeah, so his, I mean, and I've heard him recently speak on the Six by Sondheim documentary about how he may have been sad at the time, but he says his pervasive, the thing that lasted for him when the show closed was the fact that he was mostly upset that his friends wouldn't get to see it, mm. but that he was full, fulfilled as an artist in its production, which he contrasts with working on Do I Hear a Waltz, which he found very artistically unfulfilling. Mm-hmm. Um, really only did it as a favor to Richard Rogers and the, the late Oscar Hammerstein um, and vowed after that show that he would never ever do a show without being 100% artistically mm. invested. Again, after doing a show that was a huge flop, but he found artistically fulfilling and then doing a show that was a modest success and found it artistically devoid of any... Important lessons any, learned. Very important lessons yes. learned. And he learned them very early. But it did take about... I mean, that's 60... This is 64. Do I hear Waltz is 65. He doesn't have another show on Broadway for five years. And it's mm. company when he does come back to Broadway, obviously, yeah. and begins his run of like Triumphant company reverse. follies, night music, uh, you know, uh, Pacific overtures. Like we start, this is Sondheim's glory period from between company and, and uh, Sunday in the Park with George. So, yes, it, it is. Mm-hmm. It, it's certainly something he took to heart and, and worked on very well. Now, I will say. Uh, having 50% of the rights to this, all the songs from Gypsy and, uh, as it turned <laughs> out, actually only 33% of the rights to the, all the songs from West Side Story, he, um, you know, didn't have to worry about being paid. Right. <laughs> so that helps. It's mm. easy to be artistically independent when you, you know, own your own apartment. And right, things. right. But, you know, it's still, there's yeah. plenty of musicians who and composers and lyricists who have been very successful and sure. continue to chase that success. So right. he is to be a- applauded for that. Absolutely. So this is usually the part, as we wrap up, where I ask the guest what they have coming up that they want to promote. Do you, is the LGB talk, are you guys dropping a single or anything <laughs> yeah. in, the, in the near We're future? We're going on tour. Right. Uh, we actually are. We're planning on okay. going out to the districts. Um, is there anything we want to promote? No, just follow, um, you can follow me on Twitter at, at Roddy Flynn, R-O-D-D-Y-F-L-Y-N-N. And you can follow the caucus, if you'd like to, on Twitter, at LGBTEQ caucus. And you can uh, look up the pack online at lgbtequalitypack.org. Dot org. All dot right. org. You can see the candidates we endorse and who's on our board of directors and everything like that. It's All wonderful. right. Well, thank you very much, Roddy, for coming on down here and you talking very with us about Anyone Can Whistle, our sure. first Sondheim show. Yeah. So 12 more to go. 
The original cast was recorded at the Media Production Center at American University. Special thanks to Jeffrey Madison, Tom Fish, Imani Mular, and the tireless staff of students who man the front desk. Follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook at Original Cast Pod. If you happen to be in the D.C. area, my 10-minute play The Ferberizing of Coral is part of the 2016 D.C. Source Festival for their Secrets and Sound block. For tickets and performance information, visit sourcefestival.org. You can email us at originalcastpod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Subscribe to us on iTunes, and while you're there, please leave us a comment and a rating so other people can find us. Thanks to Roddy Flynn for coming down here to talk with me. You're welcome. I'm Patrick Flynn, and I can't. I have rehearsal. Someday I'm going to release the unedited version of you trying to summarize that. <laughs> as About you three and I times both, as long. After two takes and extensive <laughs> clarifications. <Pauses. laughs>